Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our time today. Thank you for this conference, the input into our lives that we receive from it. Father, I pray you would bless our time this morning, guide and direct in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to be talking this morning about how to raise resources for life and ministry. My name is Andy Reid. I'm with the Evangelical Development Ministry in Dallas, Texas, and we work with ministries in the areas of management, development, and discipleship. To begin, I want to just give you an overview of the giving culture, if you will, what philanthropy has. If you see the diagram on the screen, you'll notice that the largest amount of giving comes from individuals. 72% comes from individuals. Only 15% comes from foundations, 6% from corporations, and 7% from bequests, which really is also from individuals. So if you add those two together, almost 80% of the giving comes from individuals. Now, where does that giving go? If you look at this diagram, you'll notice that 32% goes to religion, 13% to human services, and uh, 9% to health. So when we talk about global missions, we can look at those three areas, could even maybe add international affairs, and over 50% of all the giving is going to the areas where we're involved. Now, I want to begin by way of introduction to say there's really three kinds of thinking we need to talk about when we're talking about raising resources for life and ministry. The first is what I call Great Commission thinking. That is, we're involved in getting people involved in the Great Commission. Second is faith thinking. Our part is to go out and contact people, share the message. It's God's part to touch the person's heart, to, to move them to give. It's kind of like sharing your faith. You know, you don't win someone to Christ. You present the gospel, and God touches that person's heart and moves them into a relationship with him. So it's similar to that. The third is what I call principle thinking. And that is, uh, when we look at these things, principle thinking will deal with techniques and principles. And we'll talk about that in a, in a minute. Going back to Great Commission uh, thinking, what I call ministry partnership development, that is raising partners who will be involved in the ministry with us. It's not something you do to have a ministry, but it is a ministry. In other words, you have two target audiences that you're trying to reach, those that you're called to minister to in the field and those that God brings into partnership with you that you minister to them as well. So it's a part of getting people involved in the Great Commission. When we talk about faith, we have to believe God. Uh, He is ultimately the one that owns it all. You know, we talk about our bank account, our car, our house, you know, but really, we don't own any of it. We're only stewards that God's entrusted those things to us. And so we have to work as unto the Lord. When we're doing uh, ministry partnership development or raising resources for life and ministry, we're really serving the Lord because we're getting people involved in the Great Commission. We're sharing with them the opportunities to be involved in touching the lives of people uh, locally, nationally, internationally. And then 
we talked about principle thinking. That is, techniques, those are the ways we tend to live our lives, the things we do to live our lives. But principles is really the basis for our success. If a technique is not based on principle, it may work in the short term, but in the long term it's going to be counterproductive. Where if it's based on a principle coming out of God's word, then it's going to be successful in both the short term and the long term. The Apostle Paul addresses this in Philippians 4, 10 to 19. Uh, The Philippians were concerned for him, but the word says they lacked opportunity. In verse 14, Paul said the Philippians did well to share with him. In other words, they were giving to his ministry, to the ministry he was having uh, with the others. And he said the Philippians sent a gift more than once. So that kind of tends to indicate to us that making a commitment or giving repeatedly is a scriptural principle. And then Paul wrote about the motivation for the gift. He says, not that I seek the gift, but rather I seek for the profit to your account. You know, when you are contacting people to give to the ministry, you're really giving them the opportunity to lay up treasures in heaven. And so when we look at it, we're not just raising money for ourselves. We're not just raising money for our ministry. But rather, we're giving people the opportunity to fulfill their stewardship responsibilities. And then he wrote about contentment. He says, I have received everything in full and had an abundance. Now, does that mean that you're going to get everything that you need? Well, the Bible does say that God will meet all of your needs. Maybe not all of your wants, but he will meet all of your needs in full and and abundantly. And then God, he says, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So we have that as a scriptural foundation uh, for what we're going to talk about today. Now, there's five principles for raising funds. First of all is what I've already touched on a little bit, and that is God owns it all. We're just merely stewards. Uh, Everything that exists exists because of God and belongs to God. And so when we recognize that we're going to people and we're asking them to be involved in the Great Commission through their giving, we're really not asking them for their money. We're asking them for God's money that he's entrusted to them to be a steward over. Secondly, Christians are givers. So we really don't have to be fearful if we're mainly approaching Christians We don't have to be fearful because the word says that the spirit does not war against itself. Right? Are we awake? Okay. And so, you know, would you go to somebody and ask them for prayer? Would you be fearful about going to them and asking them for prayer? No. But yet you're asking them for a gift of their time. You're asking them to make a commitment. And so why is there a difference between asking them for prayer and asking them for financial resources if both relate to the Father, not to the individual. Thirdly, God wants me to ask. And we'll talk about this towards the end of the session more in depth. But, you know, if we don't ask, we don't receive. Uh, Giving requires asking. 
if I were to say to you, gee, I need to go to the airport today, how many of you would jump up and say, I'll take you? But if I were to say, uh, you know, Christine, would you take me to the airport today? Well, then she could say, well, sure. But see, I had to ask her to do something specific, not just say I had a need. Fourthly, what I sow, I will reap. Now, this is where I'm going to get in trouble with some of you. And that is, if we expect others to give, exercise their stewardship responsibilities, we as Christians need to be exercising our stewardship responsibilities. Again, you can't say, well, but I'm giving my time. I've made this sacrifice. I've made that sacrifice. Therefore, I don't need to give financially myself. You know, if we're not sowing, we won't reap. And then five, our Father's abundant supply. Do you ever stop to think about how much God has? How much does God have? How much is everything? All things, right. It's all. So when we stop to think, you know, sometimes I hear people say, well, I don't want to ask them because they might take it away from somewhere else. Well, that's saying that God's limited. God can't give them more so they can continue to be generous uh, with their, their giving. We have to recognize that his resources have no limits on his supply. So that should free us up to be willing to talk with people about their involvement in the Great Commission. Now, the first key to effective ministry partnership development is to realize that people have a need to give. Now, I promise I'm not going to give you a test at the end, uh, but I am going to ask you a couple questions right now. How many of you have heard of uh, the Charles Dickens Christmas Carol? Anybody heard about that? Okay. Uh, there were some main characters in there. There was Bob Cratchit, his son Tiny Tim, and his boss, Scrooge. Now, who was the abnormal one in that story? Why was he the abnormal one? Miser, Scrooge, had no capacity to give, did he? Okay. But you have to realize he was the abnormal one, not the normal one. Even though Bob Cratchit didn't have much and had excuses, he still was a giving person. So we have to recognize that people have a need to give, usually more than the need that we, ha- than we have to receive. Did you hear that? People have a need to give more than we have a need to receive. And that is because I know probably your desire to ask is about that much. So if they have any more desire than that much to give, they have a, a need to give better more than you have a need to ask. We have to realize that people were created in God's image. And what do we know about God? He's a giving God. So if we are created in God's image and he's a giving God, then we as Christians are giving people. You know, Studies have shown that Christians give a larger percentage than any other uh, group of people, regardless of how much money they make. As a matter of fact, people who make the least give a greater percentage of their income uh, 
than those that are, that are wealthy. And so since God is a giving God, we're primarily approaching Christians. Christians are what? Being transformed into his image. Then we're, we're going to people who have a, a desire to give. Now, secondly, there's ten reasons why people need to give. These are not all scriptural reasons. But I want to touch base with you on on these ten things. First of all, to be a partner in something worthwhile. In other words, they want to invest in things, to be involved in things that they think are important, that they see as important not only to themselves, but probably to society as well. So they want to be a partner with something that is effective and and efficient. Secondly, they want to participate vicariously. Not everyone can go, right? Okay. So since not everyone can go, what options do they have? They can pray and, and send. So people have a need to participate vicariously. I'll never forget when I first started raising support, a young lady that went to my grandfather's church wrote to me and said, you know, I just graduated from college. I uh, have made commitments that for every year that I got tuition assistance, I have to give back by teaching. So I can't be involved for at least four years. And with some family situations, I'm not even sure I could be involved then. But I want to support you because you're going, and that way I can be involved in the Great Commission. Thirdly, to, to accomplish a specific purpose. Now, this is important for you to recognize because people will give to specific projects and programs. Some people will give just generally, but the majority will give to specific pro- projects and programs, which means that as you make your appeals, you need to be asking for specific things. Fourth, to achieve or maintain a sense of self-worth. Some people look at this and say, well, I'm giving, therefore, uh, you know, I'm a worthy person. Five, because they love Christ. They say, this is what Christ has done for me. What can I do for him? And so they do it just out of, out of love. Six, to meet a specific need. There are people that I have come in contact with over the last number of years that I've been involved in ministry partnership development who will not give if it's not a specific need. Now, does that mean everybody's that way? No, but some people are. They're that way. And so you have to begin to get to know people and One of the ways you do that is as you minister to them, you will get to know how they respond, what is important to them. So you can know if a person is someone who wants to give to a specific need, that's the kind of person you ask rather than just the shotgun approach to ask everybody for something and nobody responds. Seven, because they receive a blessing. Now, This is important and true if you're ministering to them. Some people will continue to give regardless of how badly you treat them. Now, I don't suggest you try that. 
Okay? But people give because they receive a blessing from God. And so you want to be giving them that opportunity to receive a blessing. Some people give for financial security reasons. And this is kind of two sides of the same coin. First of all, they want to honor God with their gifts. And they believe that as they honor God with their gifts, he will continue to give to them. Others give out of fear in that if I stop giving, God will stop giving to me. Now, obviously, the first one is the more scriptural of the two, but they're both for the same reason, for financial security. And then number nine, a need to give. There's that basic intrinsic need to give, have that giving accepted, and feel worthy in the the eyes of other people. And then number ten, which is the number one reason that people give when they're asked, why did you give to a particular program or project, is because they were asked to give. Okay? So that leads us to the second key is giving requires asking. The more specific you are, the more believable you are. If you say, gee, you know, we have a need for support so we can go to the mission field, well, some people will give to that. Uh, But if you say, you know, we have a specific need for $5,000 to go to the mission field, or even better, $5,121, because then they know you've done your homework and you know how much it's actually going to cost. Third key is there's a need to ask often. People will respond when they're asked to give. Now, how do you ask often without becoming a burden? Anybody have that thought pass through their mind? Well, you know, what I found over the years is that if you are thanking people, if you are expressing appreciation to them, if you're letting them know what their gifts are accomplishing, if you're building that relationship with them as a partner, not just merely a fundraiser, they don't mind being asked often. You have to give them the freedom to say no, not put undue expectations on them, but people are not not afraid for you to ask. In all the years I've done it, I've never had a person say, please don't ask me. Well, Kathy, you up just now, didn't I? Now, I've had some people say, no, we can't do that right now. But I've never had a person overreact to being, to being asked to give. <clears throat> Many of you, especially if you're just getting ready to go to the field, have what I call deferred gifts. Now, I'm not referring to those kind of gifts that somebody puts in their will that is exercised at their death. What I mean by this is you have built into their life. You've had a ministry in their life. And so you've built up these deferred gifts. They haven't known how to respond back to you to thank you for the impact you've had in their life. And so you have these deferred gifts that you can go to and you can ask them to become a partner with you. B is the frequency they ask. 
Um, how many of you ever get tired, if you have children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews or younger siblings, how many of you ever get tired of them coming and asking you for a hug or a kiss? Anybody? Okay, it looks like we've got a fairly normal audience here. The important part about that is why, is, why, why don't you get tired of that? Because you love them. Because there's a relationship. And that's the kind of relationship we need to have our, with our ministry partners. If we don't go in the spirit of love, we're not going to be building up uh, chips, if you will, for future asks or involvement. You need to ask for many causes and opportunities that you have. Again, not everybody will give to every project or program or need that you have, but you need to ask them when that program, project, or opportunity matches their giving uh, burden. God puts a burden on everybody's heart. Some are primary, some are secondary. Okay? Uh, I tend to give a lot to evangelism. That's my primary motivation. Discipleship is a secondary motivation. It's not that I won't give to discipleship, but I'll probably give more to evangelism than I will to discipleship. So if I know that about a person, when I have an opportunity, these people that should ask me is, you know, here's an opportunity. We're going to be doing an evangelistic outreach. That's the kind of ask you ought to put in front of me. Something that says... um, you know, we're going to be educating children. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But that's not a major burden that I, that I have. I might give something, but I won't give as much or as often as I might to one that, that is my burden. So as we develop the relationship with people, we get to know them, we express love, we minister to them. They will tell you what's important to them. Your job then is to listen. And then fourthly, ask for increased commitment and participation. This is really true of the millennials. They tend to give where they're involved. So if you want them to give, you've got to ask them for participation. Find ways they can be involved with you through their time as well as their finances. But over the years that you're involved in ministry, and that's why we're talking about raising resources for life and ministry, if you ask people for increased commitment and participation and you're doing the other things we're talking about, they will respond positively. Now, what are some barriers to our asking? Well, the first of all is fear of rejection. Anybody ever experienced that? You know, they might say no. Well, I have a crusade background, and one of the things that Bill Bright always used to say is, when he was talking about evangelism, faith is like a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it becomes. You know, was I still apprehensive from time to time when I went to share my faith? Yes. But you know, the more I did it, the less I was fearful of being rejected. Plus, I recognized that if I was sharing Christ with somebody, And they said, no, they weren't rejecting me. They were rejecting the gospel. 
And so when we present opportunities for people to be involved in the Great Commission through their giving, through the ministries that we're involved with, if they say no, A, it's probably not a burden that God's put on their heart, or B, they're rejecting what God's giving them an opportunity to do. We don't need to feel intimidated. We talked about this a little bit already. Primarily, we're going to be going to Christians. And so why should we be intimidated going to our brother or sister in Christ and asking them to be involved in the Great Commission? The third, and this is a more practical one, is we don't know how to ask effectively or challenge people properly. What I, what I mean by this is, how many of you ever said, well, Jim, uh, would you like to support our ministry? Okay. If they say, no, I don't think so, they've kind of shut the door. In essence, they've probably made a value judgment. I don't think I want to support your ministry. But if I say, Jim, you feel God's leading you to make an investment in the ministry at this time? If they say no, what are they saying no to? They're saying no to the timing of the gift. They're not making a value judgment at that point in time. Sometimes they may need more cultivation. They may need to understand more about what you're doing, what God is doing in and through your ministry. Uh, That may be accomplished by prayer letters, by visits, uh, by magazine articles, whatever. But When we help people understand what the ministry is that God has called us to do and how it's being carried out, generally they will will respond as long as we challenge them properly. Oh, the other thing is, if they say no to the time and to the gift, that gives you the opportunity to go back later. Whereas if you say, do you want to support my ministry, and they say no, the door's kind of shut for future uh, challenges. Five or six, people give primarily for emotional reasons, but they justify their giving with logic. Okay? What I've found over the years is that the decision to support or not support is usually almost instantaneous, but how they're going to do it, how much they're going to do, or how they're going to tell their spouse that they, they agreed to do it is a different, <laughs> different situation. Okay? G, people like to give for future plans. You know, in the investment world, uh, you've probably all heard about it. They'll say, you know, gee, over the last five years, this investment has, you know, averaged... 15% uh, return on investment, and then they always have the caveat, past performance is not any guarantee of future. Everybody hear that? Okay. It's kind of true here, too. The past gives credibility, but it doesn't mean that the future is going to be the same as the past. So when we talk about the past giving credibility, that doesn't motivate current gifts. What it does do is give you a basis for the person to say, wow, God has blessed this in the past. There's a 
good probability that he'll continue to bless it in the future. No guarantees, but so we have to recognize that it doesn't motivate current gifts. H, people like to give what they're expected to give. Most of you, unless you've been trained differently, will ask in a very general way, would you like to support the ministry? Well, most people, when they have that challenge put to them that way, they don't know what that means. They don't, mean, they don't know whether that means $5 a month, $50 a month, $500 a month. And so it's hard for them to respond. You know. So whatever you can do is a recipe for failure. I was uh, counseling with a, a, a couple one time, and uh, this guy was having trouble with his support. And so I said to, to Larry, I said, okay, look, I want you to make – Make an appointment uh, with my secretary. Come in and see me. Make a presentation like you normally would. Let me see what I can find out what's going, going wrong. And so he called my secretary, and I told Trudy, I said, no, whatever you do, you know, don't treat him as one of our uh, employees. Treat him as a vendor, because she was real good about keeping vendors away. And so he called, and... She said, he did a really good job asking for the appointment, uh, overcoming my objections to why I couldn't schedule an appointment. He showed up. He was dressed nice. Uh, he came in with a sport coat and a tie and made a good first impression. Made a great presentation of the ministry. And then just sat there. And I said, so? And he goes, Oh. Uh, so would you like to be one of our supporters? And I said, well, I, I don't know. What does that mean? He says, well, you know, you, you, you give financially. And I said, I think we found the problem. I, had no ex- I didn't know what he expected me to do. And so I said, well, you know, what do, you, what do people normally do? That's not my phone, by the way. Uh, and he said, well, he said, I've got supporters from $5 a month up to $500 a month. He says, jump in wherever you feel comfortable. In other words, he was saying, whatever you can do is okay. You know, I told him, this is not a swimming pool. I don't jump in wherever I feel comfortable. <laughs> when people are asked to give less than what they're able to, they're generally embarrassed. If they're asked to give more, they're flattered, as long as it's, not, as long as it's within reason. We set up an appointment with a, a particular head of a ministry to go in and see a foundation. We were prepping this person, and we said, now look, their average first gift is $5,000. They have assets of $20 million, but their average first gift is 5000 So the best ask you can make is $5,000. He got in, began talking about the ministry, got so excited, asked him for $40 million. <laughs> Twice as much as what their total asset base was. <laughs> Guess what their answer was? Don't call us, we'll call you. Okay? Yes, he asked them for more than, than what they were able. They weren't flattered because it was too extreme. But I've had many examples where people would say, well, 
you know, you asked me for $150 a month. I was thinking more in the, the range of 120 Let me see what I can do. And then they try to stretch to meet your expectations. Right. Now you say, well, how, how, do you, how do you know what to ask? Well, I can tell you that the average gift is between $50 and $75 a month. So you could ask for $100 a month, $75 a month, or $50 a month, and be fairly comfortable you're not going to be over-asking people. Now, that may stretch a couple people, but that's okay because they will try to rise up and meet your, your expectation. On the other hand, if someone gives you a referral, which we're going to talk about in a couple minutes, people tend to spend time with people that are in their same social economic strata. So if my friend Bob introduces me to his friend Tim, and Bob is supporting us for $200 a month, I can feel fairly confident that his friend Tim also has that same capacity. Didn't say he would, but I could ask him for that amount. And asking for a specific amount is always better than asking for even a range. But if you don't know, then you ask for a range. Like In that case, I would ask for $200 a month, $150, or $100 a month. It's okay to vary the range if you have information that lets you uh, move in, in that direction. Now, the bottom line in ministry partnership development is prospecting. That's a technical term from sales, but the reality is we always need to be adding people to our list for future solicitations. In other words, develop those qualified leads that can be, cert- be seen fav- can be seen personally under favorable condition- conditions. I know somebody's sitting there saying, "Well, what about sending out letters?" The easiest thing to say no to is a letter. <clears throat> if you're going to send out a letter, at least put a promise to follow that person up with a phone call, a personal contact. The best way to raise funds is face-to-face. So if we're going to achieve superior performance, prospecting has to be as natural as, as breathing. In other words, when we meet people, we need to find out if they would be interested in learning more about the ministry. Could we add them to our prayer letter list or newsletter list? Is it something they would like to learn more about? Could you come by and visit with them individually? Now, the best way to achieve referrals is by suggesting categories. If you're talking to one of your ministry partners and you say, gee, are there some people you can refer me to? First of all, they're going to be offended by the word refer, or they may not understand what that means. Secondly, they're going to say no, because all of a sudden you've overloaded the system. They're going to sit there and try to think, do I know of anybody? And all of a sudden, all the names that they ever came in contact with go through their brain, and they go, I can't think of anybody right now, or I don't know anybody right now. And you know they do, but you've overloaded the system. But if you suggest categories, uh, 
That's going to help them. In other words, you know, Jim, are there two or three people that sing in the choir with you that have a passion for touching people's lives for Christ? Uh, If they're an attorney, are there two or three other attorneys that work with you down at the firm or at the courthouse that would share our passion? Well, all of a sudden, that big universe comes down to a small, manageable number, and generally they can come up with two or three names. And I'd rather get two or three qualified names than just a whole list of, of names. The next way is by using a directory. In other words, if a person's sitting there and they say, you know, yeah, I'm really involved in uh, the Kiwanis Club. Well, Jim, do you have a, would you by any chance happen to have a Kiwanis directory? And they go, well, yeah. Would you mind flipping through it and see if there are two or three men or women that might come to your mind that would share our burden for the Great Commission? See, I'm using some kind of a pre-compiled directory. Or a pre-compiled list is something that I put together. Over the years, I've had a lot of people say, you know, you need to see so-and-so. Great. Can you call them? Well, I don't know them. I just know of them. So you begin to put them on a list, and you show show people that list. Is there anybody on this list that you know that you could introduce us to? This happened just a few weeks ago. Uh, One of our uh, staff members was in from... Uh, South Africa, uh, don't worry, no, no Ebola. Um, but uh, we were sitting with one of the ministry partners, and we said to Steve, Steve, uh, we've got this pre-compiled list of some businessmen here in the area. Are there two or three on this list that you know that you could introduce us to? And he introduced us to three, three people. One of them is going to be involved in printing Vietnamese Bibles, the other two made financial commitments because we had a pre-compiled list that Steve probably wouldn't have come up with their names had we not had that to show them. Okay. You have to understand that prospecting is the lifeblood of any ministry. <clears throat> it's, if you're not adding people to your list, the older you get, the the smaller the amount of support you're going to have because the reality is some people get interested in other things and they redirect their giving. God calls other people home. Okay? So you have to be constantly adding new people to your your list. What you want to do is you want to add people with the ability or the capacity to give and a desire to give. A friend of mine went to see a, a, a businessman one time. If I were to name the name, you would, you would know it because it's a, it's a food staple that everybody uses. And uh, an appointment was set up. They drove up to this place, had great big 10-foot iron fence all the way around it, guard dogs inside. You had to buzz and, and to be you know, allowed in through the, through the gates. The man was actually a prisoner in his own home. He just didn't know it. You know, and he had the ability to write a check for the entire campaign that we were talking about. But he had no desire. And so the answer was no. So you're looking for people not only with ability, but also with desire. 
a good prospect of a well-organized active reservoir building file will have to work hard to find enough contact to work with and meet with all the prospects he or she has. In times like these that we're in, economic times like these, this is more important than ever because there's not a lot of stability in in the economy. You also want to find ways to use third-party endorsements to increase givers' confidence and excitement about your ministry. When we were making some of these calls, we had a, a third party endorse us to people. That person didn't have the ability to give a lot themselves, but they had a lot of credibility in the community. And that person's endorsement opened the doors either because he called and made the appointment or allowed us to use his name in calling uh, for making the appointment. Now, the fifth key is the basis for long-term success is love. Love determines how quickly you raise your support and also how well you maintain your support. If you don't love people, I don't care whether we're talking about raising funds or being involved in ministry, you're not going to go very far because people know whether or not you, you love them. They know how much you, you care by how you re, re, relate to them. The most fundamental step in partnership development is a thank you letter, note, or email, not a text. Okay? Somebody's going to say, yeah, but people read text. Yes, they do. But they also are very dismissive of them. If, if you write a thank you letter or a, a personal handwritten thank you note, that's going to stand out because nobody does it anymore. You want to avoid ingratitude. Don't take people's gifts for granted. Thank them. There's something called the rule of sevens. This applies in fund development. I'm also told that it is involved in education. I asked my sister-in-law who's you know, been in education for 40 years. She's older than I am. Um, she'll kill me if she hears this tape. Anyway, um, they teach the teachers. Try to say the same thing seven different ways. That help. That helps a person internalize it and remember it. The same thing is true with try to find seven ways to say thank you. Now you say, well, my my ministry organization sends out a thank you letter. Great, that's one. You send out a thank you note. You send out a prayer letter, put a little note on the bottom, thanks for your recent gift or your continued giving. Look for seven different ways to say thank you. That way you'll avoid ingratitude. So what is effective ministry partnership development? Well, it's a presentation of the right cause to the right prospect by the right person asking for the right amount at the right time in the right way. That's there on your paper, so you don't have to, you know. What I mean by this is the presentation of the right cause. I would venture to say every one of you in this room has a right cause because somebody's life is going to be touched as a result of what, you, what you're doing. So then the question is, what about the right prospect? Well, is that person qualified? Not just do they have capacity, but do they have desire to give?
by the right person. Who's the right person to ask? Sometimes, and most of the time, it's going to be you. But other times, it could be that third party that's endorsed you, that has the relationship, that has the ability to ask because of their relationship with the person. Then asking for the right amount. We talked about that already. At the right time. You know, many people, if they're giving large gifts, have giving patterns, so you need to be asking at the right time, but in the right way that we talked about asking for a gift at this time or commitment at this time. So if you raise funds, you need to be asking these three questions, which are on your outline. Am I asking at the right time? Am I asking for the right amount? Am I asking for the right project? The only way you'll know the answer to those questions is by spending time with people who are partnering with you financially. You know, if a church can provide as much as 25% of your support, why do you only ask them for 10? If an individual is capable of giving $500, why would you only ask for 50? It's no more spiritual to ask for less than it is to ask for more. If raising funds for individual support, pick and choose those projects which an individual might have a strong interest in funding. I have a relationship with a, a, a gentleman. You know, I don't know how much money he has. I don't want to know how much money he has. The thing I do know about him, he's a, he's a faithful steward and he's a generous giver. But, you know, I can take him a, a project, let's say, in training pastors. And that's something that he's excited about. I could take him something, you know, feeding the homeless. He's not as excited about that. Not saying he wouldn't give, but he's not going to give as much or as quickly to one versus the other. So you need to know what's important to them. Answering these three questions will allow you to raise funds faster and build a greater bond of, between you and the ministry partner. If you're asking for things that they're interested in, that increases your relationship. That increases the bond. If you're asking them for things that they're not, they're saying, gee, does this person even know me? You know. So that's not going to increase your relationship with them. Then number six, report on ministry results. This is the most overlooked principle in raising funds for life and ministry, is not reporting back. Do you know the average missionary communicates with their supporters three times a year? Three times a year. And yet they expect them to give 12 times a year. What's wrong with that picture? Okay. There's a cultivation cycle. People are going to keep giving, but only as they hear what their gifts are accomplishing. You ought to be sending at least nine prayer letters or newsletters a year, and the other three months either making a phone call, seeing the person in, in person, or having someone, a third party, endorse you. Tell stories of changed lives. You know, statistics are great, but that's not what motivates people. People want to see what has happened with an individual's life as a result of what I've done. So tell stories of change. Show an interest in them. Ask questions. Find out what's going on in their life. Just like you would as you're ministering to someone in your field of endeavor, 
need to be doing the same, using the same principles of ministry with your ministry partners, with your supporters. And then pray for them, not on them. Oh, that's P-R-E-Y, isn't it? You pray on them. You know, how many times I've had people say, you know, I really appreciate you praying for this. It's exciting to see God answer that. I've had even people say, you know, that's the first time I've ever seen God answer a prayer. Which, which is tragic in one respect, but exciting in the other because they're, they're seeing God do something in their life. Now, how do you develop the partner? It's a discipleship process. You develop the partner primarily by meeting with them face-to-face, having an appointment with them. You want to be friendly, cordial, be open, honest, transparent, yet professional. That doesn't mean you share all your dirty laundry with everybody. But you do want to tell them, if you're having a particular struggle, get let them know that you're just like them. You know, you're not on a pedestal. So when you open the appointment, you want to establish rapport. You want to begin to find those common areas of interest. We had an, uh, uh, an appointment a couple weeks ago with a lady whose family ran a steel mill in uh, one of the towns where I, I grew up. I happened to work in that steel mill um, when I was going through college. Uh, you know, we established rapport by my sharing with her. You know, I worked at the steel mill. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Where did you work? Well, I was at the open hearth. You went to the open hearth? Yeah. How many of you know what an open hearth is? Okay. Some of you do. She did. She said, you know, my grandfather used to take me down there. She said, I don't know why. She said, but my mother always dressed me up in a white, white dress. <laughs> And I always came back totally black. You know, I got her talking about things that were important to her. That, those were important times that she spent with her grandfather at the open hearth. You know, and then well, where else did you work? Well, I worked at the electric furnace. You worked at the electric furnace? Yeah, I worked at the electric How many of you know what an electric furnace is? Okay. It's not an electric toaster, although sometimes you may think it, it is. She said, what did you do there? And I said, well, I did a number of different things. And I told her some of the things I did. And she said, yeah, I can't believe those people that actually got in there and tore the brick off. I said, yeah, you know, when you get in there, you're in there for about 10 or 15 seconds. Do all that you can. You come back out. And I said, you know that smell when you iron jeans? That's the way you smell when you come back. She said, you did that? And I said, yeah, I did that. You see, we established a rapport. We spent 25 minutes of our time, just she and I talking about our experiences at the steel company. You know. Then she said, well, how, how can I help you? So I turned to my friend and I said, share with her what God is doing through the ministry in South Africa. He did. I have never seen this lady do it before. I don't know if I'll ever see it do it since. Again, she committed $20,000 on the spot. Okay? Because, we, and I believe part of it was because we established a rapport before we got into making the ask. We gave a clear statement of purpose. Why are you there? You know, now you're going to say, well, everybody, that's obvious. I'm here to raise money. No. Why are you there? I'm here because I want to give you the opportunity to be involved in 
and then share what God is calling you to do. And then discuss tentative benefits. These are the benefits that the partner thinks, not what you think. In other words, if you've done a good job establishing the report, you'll know what's important to them. Then talk about pertinent areas of interest and concern from a ministry standpoint. You have to be sensitive here because it can take a lot of time. You don't want to overstay your welcome. And you want to ask probing questions. Those are questions that can't be answered yes or no to allow the person to tell you what's important to them. Then relate their interests to the gospel and most of all, be friendly. The presentation is where a lot of the education and motivation takes place. The two elements of a successful presentation are those two things. Education increases their knowledge. Motivation increases their excitement and their vision. Now, there's four key areas. Make sure you have your, a brief testimony either to share about how God called you to himself, how God called you into ministry, or how God continues to call you into ministry. Share your specific involvement in the ministry. Don't assume that they know what it is you're doing and what the results are. Tell stories of changed lives. And then check for understanding. Before you make the ask, make sure they fully understand what it is your ministry is about. And try to ask in a way that doesn't say, so do you understand what I'm saying? That kind of puts the onus on them. Rather, have I adequately conveyed to you what God is doing through the ministry and what the opportunities are? See, that puts the onus on me. If not, I'll go back and ask them, what are some questions you have? And I'll try to answer those to be sure that they understand before going to the close. So step number one, you summarize the benefits. Number two, you share the concept of partnership, that it takes a group of people partnering together. I like to say this, even though a lot of people know it. A partnership is not a 50-50 proposition. A successful partnership in business is where two partners give 100% each. So I'm willing to give 100%. Would you give 100%? Then share your specific financial need or opportunity. Ask for a particular dollar amount, which we've already talked about. Ask in the right way. Asking at this time. <clears throat> Never allow a person to say no to you personally, but rather to the timing of the gift. And then, this is the hardest one. Be quiet and let the person respond. You're, it's going to seem like an eternity the first time you do this. Or the second time. But, you know, if you've asked that person, even though they're sitting there looking at you with their eyes open, there's a good probability that they're praying. Lord, what do you want me to do? And if you start talking, you interrupt that communication. So allow the person to respond. And then conclude the appointment once they give you an answer, if they give you an answer of yes. Review the contribution process. What can they expect? Tell them you're developing a prayer team. What are some prayer requests that they can give you that you can be praying for them? Then you ask for referrals that we've already talked about. In conclusion, be a friend-raiser, not a fundraiser. A fundraiser says, give me your money so I can go do my ministry. That's not partnership. 
But when you're raising friends, you can say, would you partner with me to accomplish this goal, this mission? Give, a, give your best to the work of the master. Build this into your schedule. Don't say, well, I'll do it when I get around to it. I was really bad about saying that, and finally one, one of my employees came in, brought me this round piece of wood that was stained, and on the wood it said, to it. It said, here, now you can't ever use that excuse again because you've got a round to it. <laughs> Raising money is not something you do to someone, but it's something you do for someone. These are listed on the, on the sheet, but I'm just going to run them through. But I encourage you to go back and look at 2 Corinthians 9, 8 to 14. First of all, verse 8 says, All grace will abound to you, the giver. You will have all that you need, the giver. You will have an abundance for every good work, the giver. The results of your righteousness will increase, the giver. You'll be made rich so you can be more generous, the giver. Thanksgivings will go to God from the asker. That's you, for the giver. You will supply the needs of the ministry. Thanksgiving will go to God from the recipient of the ministry. Those people that you're ministering to will thank God for those that have sent you. You will prove your position in Christ. Recipients will glorify God. Recipients will pray for the givers. And lastly, recipients will long to know the givers personally. I don't know about you, but those are exciting things that are straight from God's word, principles that raising money is not doing something to someone, but it's doing something for someone. So I appreciate it. We only have the hour, and so we're right there. I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have. Thanks for coming.